I don't always read short stories, but when I do, I prefer Flannery O'Connor. Um, if you're, well, I, it was, what, 2000, 2000, 1999, 2000, I think. Yeah, spring of 2000, I was uh, at school, and I took a class on Southern literature, because I was in North Carolina, and at my school there was a, well, he was a Yank, uh, Tony Abbott. He was from the Northeast. I guess that is like a, is that a carpetbagger? Is that what that is? Where they, they come from the North and they come and colonize the South? So he was a carpetbagger and a poet, and he was also an English professor and a, um, an elder in the Presbyterian Church. And he loved Southern literature, so he introduced me to the greats uh, of the last century, Walker Percy, um, Frederick Beekner, who was technically from the Northeast, but he lived a long time in the South, and uh, of course, William Faulkner, and finally, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, if you haven't read any of her stories, uh, they are dark. I mean, you can't get through a Flannery O'Connor story without something grotesque, something uh, shocking, a death, an unforeseen death, like a good person getting gunned down for no reason. You can't get through a Flannery O'Connor book or a story without somebody who doesn't fit in in the world. Someone uh, She often talks about circus freaks, and people um, who, who just don't, they're, 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 they're laughed at, they're grotesque, they're weird. She writes um, a letter to a friend who is also an author, uh, a woman named Cecil Dawkins, about the church. And she says, All your dissatisfaction with the church seems to me to come from an incomplete understanding of sin. Well, this will perhaps surprise you because you're very conscious of the sins of Christians. However, what you seem actually to demand is that the church put the kingdom of heaven on earth Right here, now. That the Holy Spirit be translated at once into all flesh. You're asking that man return at once to the state God created him in. You're leaving out the terrible, radical human pride that causes death. Christ was crucified on earth, and the church is crucified in time. And the church is crucified by all of us. By her members, most particularly. Because she's a church of sinners. The church is founded on who? Peter, who denied Christ three times and couldn't walk on water by himself. And you're expecting his successors to walk on water? All human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us, and the change is painful. Painful grace, grace that hurts. What brings Flannery O'Connor to this vision of what grace is? Grace, which we always hear as the overwhelming, unmerited favor of God that lavishes over us, that saves us, that brings us to God's self. How is it that this woman comes to the conclusion that grace hurts? Well, she begins her letter this way. We just read the end. She says, I'm strapped up with a broken rib of all things. I broke it coughing. I never knew such was possible, but I warn you, if you get a cough, 
buy yourself some cough syrup. Don't just sit around coughing. Flannery O'Connor contracted lupus. Um, at that time, uh, lupus was totally, I mean, lupus is still incurable, but now we have um, some relief for those with lupus, uh, immunosuppressor uh, drugs that can um, ease the pain. But lupus at the time was a death sentence young. Uh, when she was 15, her father died uh, from lupus, and then she contracted lupus and died at 39. But O'Connor came to see the disease that took her father young and would claim her life as an invasion of grace, a grace that hurt, it crippled, and broke her, but a grace that changed everything about the way she saw the world. A grace that was painful, but opened her eyes to the majestic beauty of God's creation, the human injustices that mar it, and the glorious resurrection to come. Today, in the scriptures, we're going to meet someone a little bit like Flannery. Someone who thinks they understand how the world is. A man who thinks he's good. He's a good man in a, in a world where a good man's hard to find. He's magnanimous, generous, polite, discerning, open-minded, a good guy, a man who has everything set in its right place, a man who is in desperate need of piercing, painful grace. Let's stand and read the text together if you have, it's not really a note sheet. This is Luke 7, 36 to 50, and it is the story of a painful grace. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down, literally reclined, laid down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, a prostitute, when she saw that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, really, literally, I'm sorry, she knew, she heard, she found out that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet, and anointed them with the oil that she brought. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he, he thought to himself, he speaks to himself, saying, Oh, this man, this man. If he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. And Jesus answered his thoughts and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Obvious. And Jesus said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman, but said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You invited me. You're the host. But you... You gave me no water for my feet. She washes my feet with her tears and wipes them with the hair of her head. You didn't kiss me, the kiss of friendship, of honor. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my ugly, dirty feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil to clean me, to have my face shine and bright 
so I would feel clean. This woman anoints my dirty, ugly, smelly feet with fragrant perfume. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, that same person loves little. Then he said to her, maybe reminding her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Shalom. You may be seated. We'll be forgiven for thinking that, that Jesus loves to party. Actually, the last time I got up here and preached, it was uh, the, the story of Levi's celebration. Right? Levi gets called... Um, from being a tax collector, and he throws a big party for Jesus, and Jesus is there. And of course, the party it gets train wrecked, disaster strikes, and it's a horrible party. Um, the same thing happens here. Jesus seems to like parties, but he seems to ruin them by his very presence. Jesus is not the sort of person you want to have at your party. Things will go badly, badly awry. So Simon throws a dinner for Jesus. What a guy, right? Simon the Pharisee. I mean, wow, magnanimous. Uh, genteel, polite, welcoming. Remember, for the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they're, they're, they do not like Jesus. They think Jesus is, uh, he's sketchy at best. Remember, uh, just a few verses before, if you read, you find out that they think that Jesus is a glutton and a drunk, and he hangs out with unseemly people. So Jesus has kind of a bad reputation amongst the religious people of his day. But Simon, Simon's not like them, right? Simon, well, he's, he's like me. He's a little bit above, a little bit cut from a, a different cloth than the rest of the religious people. Someone a little more open-minded, a little more tolerant, a little more kind and welcoming. Simon says, you know what? I'm going to do Jesus a favor. I'm going to do you a solid Jesus. I can see that you've gone off the path. You've gotten a bad reputation. Why don't you come sup with me? And we can maybe set you back where you belong. Maybe you really do belong with the good religious folk, Jesus. So come on over and we can put you where you ought to be. Simon's, you know, he's fairly wealthy. Maybe not rich, not as rich as Levi, but, you know, he's at least middle, maybe upper middle class. He has a home. He can invite many people. You notice at the very end, there's plenty who are sitting at the table with Jesus in, first, in verse 49 who are questioning whether or not he can forgive sins. And, and let's be, and Simon, he's, he's a Pharisee. He's religious. He's ritually pure. He follows all the rules. He's, he's okay for temple worship. If Jesus is, in fact, a glutton, a glutton and a drunk, and if Jesus is, in fact, hanging out with unseemly people, Jesus very possibly could be icky. He might rub off on Simon, make him nasty and gross. Simon's taking a little bit of risk here. He's like me. You know, I'm not, I'm not afraid to get my hands a little dirty with some of the lesser folk. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to be, well, you know, a good Christian. To reach out. To, to, I'm, I'm not scared. I'm willing to do it because I'm such a magnanimous, generous person. Simon's the same way. I really relate to this guy. You know, he sees Jesus and he's going, I'm going to give you a hand up, brother. Come on. We can do better than this. And you know what? If it turns out that he sets Jesus on the right path and Jesus gets accepted into the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they might look at Simon and be like, wow, Simon, you saw something none of the rest of us saw. You really are a great guy. Which is most, how most of you see me, right? I, I do the things that you didn't think were possible, and then I do them, and amazing things happen. And you look and you say, oh, Tom, you really are a great guy. Everybody wins. 
well. After Simon does this, this gracious, this wonderful thing for Jesus, something terrible happens. A prostitute invades the party. Imagine if you're Simon. Imagine that we're, you know, at the potluck for Arch and Carolyn that took place last week, and we're all sitting around talking about the things that happened, and a prostitute struts in. Um, she maybe sits behind Arch and starts, you know, massaging his neck a little bit. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Didn't see that coming. Um, she, maybe she takes off his shoes, right, gets out, the, uh, gets out the oil, begins a little foot massage. And Arch, you know, he's sitting there, he's like, this is really nice, thank you, keep going. Don't, don't stop. We might be a little bit scandalized. And this isn't just, this isn't just your run-of-the-mill prostitute. No, no, she's a good one. She, she makes a killing. She has an alabaster jar filled with perfume. You can't just... No, she's, she's doing well for herself. So here she is. She walks in. She undoes her hair, shakes it. Right? Whoa. Okay. All right. She kneels down, works up some tears, drips them on Jesus' feet. Now, remember, they're laying down because they, they recline to eat. The, tap, the table would have been sort of a U-shape. Because Jesus is the honored guest, he's kind of at the front of it, laying out to the side. And so she's behind him, and uh, she's, you know, tears on, on the feet. She's, <laughs> get the hair. Whoop. Very nice. And she opens up the jar, the expensive jar, just begins to, you know, kind of work the, the, the feet a little bit. And all the while, Jesus, uninterrupted, keeps teaching, keeps talking at dinner as though nothing's going on. Imagine this is your party. Imagine you're Simon. <laughs> well, the thing is, here's the good news, guys. Simon's a lot like me. He's, he's not going to make a scene, okay? He's a magnanimous, generous, open-minded, tolerant, well-thinking, good guy. He thinks in his head something's terribly wrong here, but the way he acts, no, he doesn't say a word. kind of lets it go. He's got this guy here. A supposed teacher. Supposedly a prophet. He's a fraud. Prophets aren't gluttons. Prophets aren't drunks. And if he was really a prophet, he'd at least know who this woman is. Notice that Simon is in his mind giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Imagine how scandalous it would be if Jesus knew she was a prostitute. Knew what she was doing and encouraged it. You couldn't get more scandalous for someone who wants to be a leader in Israel. But Simon keeps his cool. He's hospitable, polite, generous. Yeah, okay. Obviously, he's a fraud. But, you know, we don't have to deal with him until uh, after the dinner is over. So we just got to get through this dinner. We'll try to... But, you know, gosh, imagine what the talk of the town is going to be like tomorrow. Do you hear what happened at Simon's place? Yeah. Dude, Jesus was like, so he comes in, right? And he's like, he's messing with the prostitute. I mean, what is going on? What a nut job. But Simon, man, that guy is amazing. What a great guy that he was in the middle of this awful situation. 
This terrible situation. And, and he, he kept his cool. Everyone at the table was just itching to throw this dude out. But Simon was like, hey guys, we're going to let it go. No big deal. Um, we're just going to pretend like nothing's going on. We're just going to keep propriety. We're going to... Guys, look, he's my honored guest. And I'm going to do right by my honored guest because I observe the rules of hospitality. I'm a good Jew, a good church-going Jew. Unbelievable. I loved, in the early ni- or late 90s, early 2000s, I loved the movies that had the big reveal at the end. You know the movies I'm talking about. I think probably the most famous from that era is The Sixth Sense. Did you guys see that movie? The Sixth Sense? In the movie, uh, Bruce Willis plays, um, what, he's like a, a child psychologist, and he's tortured because uh, one of the ki- uh, people that he was mentoring ended up committing suicide. And he, in the course of his work, he, he meets this kid, and this kid uh, claims to be able to see the dead. And the kid claims that the dead people he sees don't know that they're dead, and they're, uh, they're tr- they, they, they can't understand that they've passed from this life to the next. And if they could only get that, if they could only understand that, they could move on. But they can't figure it out. And so at first, Bruce Willis is like, yeah, okay, good, way to go. Um, you're obviously insane. And so he's trying to work through it. But as the movie progresses, he begins to believe this child. That yes, in fact, the child is communing with the dead. And, tr- and Bruce Willis is like, well, what we should do then is we should try to work with them and try to explain them. Use this gift you have to help the dead move on. And it, it works. It succeeds. The child who was racked with fear and anxiety uh, becomes well-adjusted, and everything's going great. And at the last scene, Bruce Willis visit, goes back home, and he sees his wife there having a terrible time in their marriage. And she's sitting in a chair, and she, she opens her hand, and a wedding band rolls out. And he looks at his hand, and his wedding band is gone. And he realizes, I'm dead too. He's been wearing the same outfit the entire movie. It's still stained with blood. He realizes that everything he's just experienced is completely different than what he had thought that it was. In this one moment, we as viewers go back and we look through the whole movie and we think of every single scene we saw and we're shocked, blown away. In the entire movie, we never noticed, but Bruce Willis had no interaction with anyone except for the little boy because he's dead. And then the little boy can see dead people. He doesn't know it. Boy, you can see what I'm saying. A reveal. Amazing. Totally blows your mind. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan, who uh, directed and wrote that movie, has been uh, failing to recapture the glory of that film for uh, 15 years now. It's really sad. Um, he, it, it's the worst when you, when you peak right out the gate, and then the rest of your career is just this long, slow fa- uh, fade into obscurity. That's, that's sad. Okay. Um, the reveal. One moment where everything changes. All of the assumptions that you've had as a viewer watching The Sixth Sense, everything that you see is totally consistent with the possibility that Bruce Willis is like everybody else. He's just a good child psychologist. But then in this last scene, in this last moment, you're asked, there is another way to see everything that you've just seen. Your interpretation makes a little bit of sense, but there's another interpretation that is completely different. And it's, it makes more sense. It, it, the mind boggles. It takes into account things you never expected to take into account. The reveal. In our text, Jesus brings home the big reveal. Starting in verse 40. 
Jesus answered Simon's mental thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. It's like he stops. Jesus has been talking with people, and he, I guess, what, hears, perceives um, supernaturally how, how Simon's thinking, and just stops everything and says, well, let's try this differently. Okay, teacher, say it. Simon, still a good guy. Still honor, Jesus, you're the honored guest. I'm going to treat you that way even though you're a fraud. And then Jesus tells the, the parable of the creditor and the two debtors. And I think, you know, we're supposed to see the, pro, the prostitute as uh, the one who's many, many sins, right? She owes 500 denarii. And the master, God, in this case, uh, through the person of Jesus, forgives that debt. And so maybe what we're supposed to think then is that, yes, Simon, uh, Simon's, he's a small debtor. You know, he's like Tom, just, okay, a few things here and there, maybe a little rough around the edges, but good guy. And maybe this is the way we're supposed to read that, that parable. Well, for one thing, the first part of the reveal is that as soon as Jesus uh, says this, as soon as it's clear that Jesus has perceived what Simon is thinking... We know that Jesus is a prophet. The first thing you thought about Jesus, Simon, that he's a fraud, you're wrong. Or you could be wrong. See, Simon, he's worried that Jesus can't tell a prostitute when he sees one. Jesus probably can tell a prostitute when he sees one. Uh, Jesus is also apparently able to read your mind. Prophet, yes. Check. Reveal two. He turned to the woman, Jesus, and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You didn't kiss me, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Revealed too, Simon, in your world, you're this great guy, right? You're doing Jesus a solid, can help him out a little bit, be a nice, generous host. Simon, you think of yourself kind of the way that Abraham is pictured in the Old Testament, as, as hospitable and generous, so that when God visits Abraham at Mamre, um, Abraham is w- able to welcome God in, the, in the, the, the three persons that visit him. And Simon seems to think of himself that way. You know what, Simon? You're wrong. You know what a host does? Well, a host washes the the guest's feet, or at least has a servant do it. What does a host do? A host gives you the kiss of friendship, acknowledging that you're the same. And in the case of an honored guest, that he's welcome and that he is honored. What does a host do? A host at least gives you a little oil for your face so that you don't have the dirt from the road on it as you speak. Simon, you didn't do any of those things. Why not? Because you think you're up here, and you think I'm down here, and so you don't have to. But look at this woman. She knows exactly what the score is. And so she acts accordingly. And she's shaming you. Reveal three. If that's the case, then the woman is nothing at all like what Simon thought she was. 
And we know she's a prostitute. But you've got to think back in the, you know, the first century, and really even today. I mean, do people, I don't think that young people in high school think about what they're going to do with their lives and think prostitute. That is not something that happens. In the ancient world, it's even worse. In the ancient world, you're basically forced into prostitution. And Neil talked about this a little bit uh, a few months back when we talked about Rahab. Uh, Prostitution is the resort of someone who has no man or has a man who's died, who can't provide and needs to find some way to make a living. And in a world where the strength of your back is the extent of what your earning power is, women don't have the same advantages that men do. Moreover, there was a thriving sex trade in the first world. Not unlike in contemporary times where poor parents would sell their children into uh, prostitution. So maybe this woman, Simon, didn't have the same opportunities that you did when you were born into a wealthy home with a plot of land. And maybe the reason that she's doing all these things is because for the first time in her life, there's hope. For the first time in her life, someone has come and seen her. Not looked past her, not focused on what she did, not focused, but, but seen her. Maybe for the first time in her life, someone has come with the grace and forgiveness of God and says, there is a new life for you. Imagine what that would have been like, Simon. Imagine if you had lived this life and suddenly someone came in and said, I see you. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, 48, 49. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Reveal four. Simon, what if Jesus really can forgive sins? What would that mean? Well, it would mean that he comes with the agency of God. It means, Simon, that you were going to do Jesus a solid, and what you were really doing is inviting God into your house, and God came. And then you proceeded to treat God like dirt, like you were better than God. If Jesus really can forgive sins, then Simon, you're not just not like Abraham. You're Abraham's exact opposite. Your self-image of hospitality, generosity, magnanimity is a lie. The entire way that you see the world is inverted. It's wrong. It's completely upside down. Simon, this whole scene you have seen incorrectly. You don't understand what just happened. You've interpreted it badly. Nineteen sixty-two, uh, Thomas Kuhn uh, published what it's, uh, it's an amazing book. I mean, for a book to be published in nineteen sixty-two and still have people talking about it, that's pretty good. I'm working on my dissertation and. Uh, you know, I would hope that it would be published, and I would hope that, you know, a few libraries might pick it up, and that eventually, over the course of time, uh, scholars would come along and maybe have two or three, maybe even four or five or six people read it. That would be awesome. Thomas Kuhn wrote Structures of Scientific Revolution, 
The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, sorry, in 1962. His book has gone through like, you know, it's in the third edition now. It's still standard reading in a bunch of college. I mean, he, he hit it. He really nailed it. I, um, I was actually just reading it, and I was like, man, I really need to, I need to change the way I write. This guy, you can really, he's not just, he's not like, he's not pretentious. You know, he's saying, this is how things are. It's, he's sort of like a, like a guide instead of, I'm a college professor, you know. Um, and I was, so I, I was a little bit humbled by that. Uh, anyway, the structure of scientific revolutions. He talks for the first time in uh, in the English-speaking world about paradigm shifts. You've perhaps heard this term, paradigm shifts. Uh, the, the, the paradigm case, the standard case of a paradigm shift is uh, Copernicus, right? So when Nicholas Copernicus is uh, there in the 1500s, should have looked that up. At any rate, uh, Nicholas Copernicus, 1500s, um, and he finds out that or he, he, he's an astronomer, and he realizes that the standard way of doing astronomy, the Ptolemaic system, uh, which has been around for, at that point, 1,500, 2,000 years, is just not adequate to describe the movement of the heavens. It's close. It's really close. And the way that uh, Ptolemy had set things up is he says, all right, Earth's the center of the universe, and then there are uh, concentric spheres around the earth, bigger and bigger and bigger. And each of these spheres have um, little lights on them, right? And there's a sphere for the sun, a sphere for the moon. And if you, if you get it working just right and all the spheres start spinning, you can approximate pretty closely the way that it appears that the heavenly bodies move. But by the time that Copernicus comes around, you know, the, the system's been around for 1,500, 2,000 years People have noticed there's lots and lots of problems. The, um, the, the, the predictions just aren't quite right. And Copernicus radically changes the way we think. He says, let's try it where the sun is in the center. The earth is revolving around the sun, the heliocentric universe. The uh, moon is revolving around the earth. And these other bodies that we see, Venus, Jupiter, whatever, are also revolving around the sun. If we, if we do this, this model, we can better predict what we see in the skies. Now imagine, that's a radical shift. Because if you go outside and you look, the last thing you're going to assume is that we're going around the sun. It very much appears as though the sun, if anything, is kind of arcing around us. So what, what Nicholas Copernicus does is absolutely mind-blowing. It's a paradigm shift. It changes everything. It, it, the, the effects of this are, are, are as far-reaching as you can believe. In philosophy and theology, uh, for the first time, theologians are confronted with the idea that we're not the center. We're not number one. That, in fact, we're a part of something vaster, something larger. It shakes the very foundations of European culture. This simple, unbelievably powerful insight. It shifts the paradigm forever. Jesus has just given Simon an opportunity to shift the paradigm. Jesus has given Simon an opportunity opportunity to ask a different question. Not, who is this fraud? Not, why is he letting a prostitute in here? Not, why am I not saying something and kicking them out? No, the question that Simon ought to be asking is, what if I'm the bad guy? In this story. What if I'm the bad guy? 
You can imagine what's going to happen to his world if he asks that question and says, I am the bad guy. He's going to be utterly and completely humiliated, debased, shattered. Everything he thinks is wrong. Everything he thinks about himself is wrong, utterly, completely wrong. He's not the man he thought he was. The God of the universe came to his house, and he missed it. The biggest pitch of his life, and he, nothing but air. Simon's just been on the receiving end of a piercing, painful grace. God didn't have to go to his house. Jesus didn't have to walk into his life. Things could have just continued going the way they were. But God said, no, I'm going to give you a chance today, Simon. I'm going to turn things upside down for you. Simon, I'm going to give you a chance to see, see this woman. I'm going to give you a chance to reevaluate the universe. Maybe you're not at the center. Tom, maybe the universe doesn't revolve around you. Maybe you revolve around something else. And maybe if you begin to see the universe that way, it'll start to make more sense. a chance for the first time in a long time to see this woman, to reconceive of the world, to reimagine what God is like and how the world is structured. It's not centered around Simon's comfortable middle to upper middle class values. The hierarchies that he believes in and trusts don't actually exist. He's a man who thought himself full of generosity and love and finds out that he hasn't either. These are the hard truths, the costs of painful grace. So Flannery O'Connor writes this story. It's called Revelation. It's my favorite of her stories. And it's the story of a, uh, a woman. She's a, she's a plantation owner. Now this is the, post, the post-war, uh, post-World War II South, so she doesn't have slaves on her property. She pays a number of um, uh, black and white hands to come and help. And she, uh, she just thinks she's awesome. She, she's, and she's fun. She's affable, right? Um, she's just a pleasure to be around. Like, she's always got something funny to say, a uh, big smile on her face. Uh, she's, she is really nice. She has, she's generous, you know. She gives at church. She's charitable. Um, but she, she says at one point, uh, every night before she goes to sleep, she asks God, she says, God, um, what, would, what would I have you make me if you hadn't made me me? And she thinks about all the terrible things that God could have made her. White trash. Uh, black. Um a lunatic or a freak, a circus clown. And she thinks, thank God that's not me. Thank God that's not me. And then, in an explosion of of extraordinarily painful grace, a girl sees her, is horrified by her, and jumps out and says, you old, fat warthog from hell. Mrs. Turpin is struck. What? 
Me? A warthog from hell? And she goes home. And she stands up and she's yelling at God. And she said, why, why, did it, why was that told to me? It's me. I, I come on Sunday. I give. I'm, I'm charitable. Why am I the old one? Look at all the people here. They're the warthogs. Why didn't you call them? Why did you say that to me? She even understands this is God speaking to her. This is God breaking in, invading with a painful, piercing grace and shaking her up. And she has a moment. She raised her hands from the side of the pig pen in a gesture, hieratic, she gives the sign of the cross, and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge, the streak of the sun as it sets, extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and, bl- and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end, because the first shall be last and the last shall be first, of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were disappearing. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pin, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on on what lay ahead. In a moment the vision faded, but she remained where she was. In the woods around her, an invisible cricket, of course, a chorus of crickets had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing up into the starry field shouting, Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, there is a kind of grace that hurts. It is the kind of grace that asks for a paradigm shift. A kind of grace that asks asks us to completely upend the way we see the world. A kind of grace that reveals to us who we really are. A kind of grace that if we knew what was going to do to us, we would not want it. Simon received this painful grace. And Luke, interestingly, does not tell us how he responded. If the painful grace comes your way, know that you too, like Mrs. Turpin, will look up, and though you hear crickets, you will hear the song, Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we first ask you to make us people who do not need a painful grace. God, give us eyes to see ourselves. Give us an ability to sense where we are lacking. God, let us be the people who see the woman and see her.
But God, if we're not those people, we invite you right now. We, we, we look up to you, God, and we say, if, it, if, it, if painful grace is what we need, then we, we will accept it. We will, we will endure it. God, in that endurance, we identify with Jesus who walked to the cross, who himself was a painful, endured a painful grace, endured penalties so that we might not have to. God, this Passion Week, open our eyes and let us see. In your son's name we pray, amen.